From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it on Zoom every week, most weeks anyway on Zoom. Sometimes we get live into the studio. This is a Zoom week. Zoom allows us to tie in from wherever we are. We've got three hosts in here for most of the show. Eric Bradlow is here. Audie Weiner is here. This is Cade Massey. Shane Jensen is off doing Shane Jensen things today. He will be back. Gentlemen, we're recording on Tuesday afternoon, as we typically do. Show will go up on Wednesday, be replayed a few times on SiriusXM. It'll also be posted as a podcast on Wednesday. We thought we would have had game three results today and found out whether the Phillies could hold serve at home, but was postponed by, postponed by rain last night. We'll get game three tonight on Tuesday night. Curious what y'all take on um, what your take is on the first two games of the World Series. Interesting opening what your expectations are going into the Philly homestand for the next three games. Um, curious where you are. So I was uh, um, excited to see that the Phillies walked away with a win. So one and one um, and first win, we're first win in dramatic fashion um, coming back after five and no deficit. Both games featured basically a walloping against their star starters, Nola and Wheeler, and mm-hmm. then a sh- complete shutdown by their bullpen. Um, that, of course, bodes well, I think, for the future. Um, I would guess that their regression to the mean of two of their starters is more likely they'll re- revert to form in the next time they pitch. But the bullpen is many of them. So you expect sort of that sort of uh, indicative of, of a larger number. You should expect less regression. And so maybe they are legit. And uh, I just want to point out you're using regression to the mean in a positive sense this way so yes. both, well i'm actually both say, i'm basically saying that that uh so you regress your to the individuals mean not the not the uh not the league-wide mean so um, nola and wheeler had cy young level type pitch, pitching seasons they got you know they got beaten in the first two games pretty badly um so they should we should expect them to regress back down better to their to their their normal um performance and while the the bullpen you would also expect to regress to the mean in the in the poor direction because they were essentially flawless. Where where can you go other than than getting worse? Um, I still expect them to be pretty good. Um, so so um, pitching front looks good for the Phillies. Yeah. So I interpreted Game One a little bit differently than you did. Um, well, of course the Phillies came back one of the best World Series games in a long time. The saving catch in the ninth, uh, the winning home run in the tenth, all of that. Um, you could easily see a scenario where they were down two games to love. I mean, they got beaten soundly in game two. They mm-hmm. had to rally from a 5 nothing deficit in game one. Um, fortunately, and I said this last week, by the way, fortunately we have the now the worst pitcher in the history of the World Series who pitched game one for them, which was Justin Verlander, the worst pitcher in the history. He has the worst ERA in the history of the World Series now for anyone that started five games in the World Series. He has started eight World Series games. He's 0-6 with a 6.5 ERA. So fortunately, we had the choking Justin Verlander pitching um, so, in that let me, game. Let me ask you one side question on that. How many people have started eight World Series games? I don't know that I'm going to guess there's probably 50, 100, a lot. That's not Yeah, that sure. Come on. Everybody that played for the Yankees in the 50s and 60s, the Yankees in the 20s and 30s, 
I, the Yankees I, in the nineties, the Yankees, in, you know, yeah, a got lot. Andy, 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 yes, okay. a lot. Good. This Andy is why Pettit I asked a big red example. machine. Come on. We got lots and lots of yeah, like Andy for- Pettit as an example. I don't, I, I may have this wrong, but he was like 14 and five, 14 and six. And I mean, Jeez. No, Justin Verlander has never won a World Series games, and his ERA is the worst for anybody that started five games or more. So at some point, you know, either way, I view it as we got lucky to split one and one, given mm-hmm. the way things were. Um, however, um, I'm optimistic about the Phillies because I agree with Adi. I don't think Nola and Wheeler can pitch worse. I think they will pitch better. Um, tonight's a fascinating game with Rangers Suarez against Lance McCullers. Um, I think that's another interesting, interesting game there as well. Um, I, I think the Phillies are a good team. I think it's going to be a very, it's a great series. Great, great, great series right hey, now. And can I, can I go a little bit more on the Houston stand, uh, Houston trip first? Uh, Wheeler, that the, the opening, how remarkable, y'all tell me again, um, let me ask stupid questions about baseball. How remarkable was the opening of that game two on Wheeler? And I'm curious what has been written about it since. The, the, I assume the Astros had a strategy. I assume the Astros had some scouting yep. that said, because uh, what happened was obviously first pitch, first Altuve takes it, a double, second batter. I think, again, first pitch, double, third I think it was batter. Three doubles to start the game, right? Out of four pitches. So it, it wasn't just right. the first three guys, but they were, they were swinging. There was no taking. They were swinging immediately, which I'm assuming was some scouting report. It was. So how, how, yeah, what do we know, and how unusual is it for a guy to get hit like that? And then he stayed in the pitch good for innings. The only comment I know about that is I remember in the game before when he pitched in the NLCS, they were saying that Wheeler, I, they, they mentioned something like he was second and third in the major leagues in first pitch strike rate. So in other words, he's right. going to try to get ahead of hitters. Right. Right. And, and uh, so I'm sure that the Astros knew this and that I think Adi, I, I think, I, you know, we've been together eight and a half years doing this. I'm pretty sure you've said this in many cases, the first pitch is going to be the best one you see in an at bat. But everybody well, knows it, this and yet they don't. And everybody knows this about Wheeler, presumably, but the Astros are like, we're going to attack it aggressively. It seems I'm guessing. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's worth worth studying. I mean, I know that some of the analysis I've done of pitch pitching through the cycle of at bats have uh, you ask yourself like what happens on pitch one of the at bat, right. and pitch one of the at bat for the first batter relative to what you expect for the first batter, which is a lot because they're a good hitter, is the highest distance followed by the second batter's first pitch, and then it goes to normal. So after. It's like there's a huge benefit for the first batter on the first pitch, a moderate benefit on the second batter first pitch, and then of course all this is ca- confounded. But but everybody has a first pitch, so you can sort of. So, Adi, hold on. Are you, the benefit goes to the hitter that that they yes, perform they, they better on the first pitch. Yes, yes, right. Well, remember, the, remember, it's hard to define. What does it mean to define a woba or a batting average on on pitch one? Nobody strikes out on the first pitch, um, so automatically everything is inflated. So you have to compare um, what what a uh, first pitch on is for all other batters and kind of make that kind of adjustment. Yeah, one, of the, right. one of the classic misuses of statistics is to, to sort of say that when, uh, uh, when, when a batter ba- swings at the first pitch, he hits, you know, 420. Uh, somehow that's impressive. And remember, you're not ever striking out. So you already have this whole huge benefit. And, and once you take those out, all of a sudden everything is inflated. Um, but you okay. could compute, you could compute, would you be opposed to, I'm not saying it's the only metric, but how about batting average on balls in play? 
Right. So batting average on balls in play, including, of course, home runs, that, that is a good way to do it. And, and, and they feast. Remember, if they don't like the pitch, they just take it. So, right. So you really have to talk about, oh, oh you know, uh, maybe a 1-1 count or something of that nature. But there's clearly an elevation for batter one and clearly an elevation for batter two. And the rest of it is sort of there's just a normal, the normal impressive performance when you, so, when, when you have a good count. Two, two, I guess one thing that I'm looking for is should I credit the Astros organization for a nice piece of scouting and strategy? When you're scouting, then the act, they adopted a strategy that allowed them to exploit it, or am I overreacting? And then two, Wheeler must have adjusted. He must have had to adjust after three guys hit him like that. And that's like, okay, I can't do my thing, which is like open with a nice pitch. Am I right in those two inferences? Uh, you know, I'm going to say one thing about the Astros. They're a serious, they're a serious team. I went to the, the, um, the, one of the playoff games and I was uh, sitting nearby a lot of scouts and the Astros scout was unbelievably focused, filling up reams of paper while he, while he just concentrated on every aspect of the game. Um, I've seen scouts all over, you know, in, in over many, many games historically. And I've always wondered, what are they doing? They sit there with their stopwatches. Really? We have, we need that now. We have all this tracking right. data and they have their own radar guns. And, and I'm looking at this is what is this 1981? Um, but apparently, you know, they, there's still a tradition of sending scouts out and I've never really Really seen a, a scout a, a, as more uh, in, into the game. Of course, he was preparing for a World Series, um, so that's that has a certain. Uh, Just uh, first, focus. a couple things, Adi. Of course, your random choice of 1981, given you're the Astros, is not a bad random choice. They were that go. was a big year for them. But secondly, uh, Kate, your story is an interesting one, which would be you know good scouting and good adjustment, and you know um, you know I, I'm going to post something at W Moneyball and see if somebody for. Somebody might know something about, is that a reasonable hypothesis? Because I like the story of it, and I, I like the – matter of fact, the part I think that impresses me the most, maybe it doesn't impress – I think the readjustment part of yeah. Wheeler, for some Wheeler, reason, for sure. I, yeah, Wheeler impresses me more than they scouted it. It's like he picked this up like three batters, four batters into the game, like, shit, that, that ain't working. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because there's so much conversation in the baseball analytics landscape about batter learning. In fact, so much of the right. uh, what I now consider to be the the erroneous third time through the order effect is all concentrated <laughs> on what they call batter learning. That's right. But isn't there a, a counterpoint, yeah. which is pitcher learning? It's not an equilibrium story. That's yeah, that's exactly pitchers right. learn too. So whatever you learned on the first two la- two rounds, they learned on about you in the first two rounds. Um, mm-hmm. Meaning that that exists exhaustion. That probably uh, looks at the at the at the uh, you know the denigration of. Um, I think the part that's interesting also is you know in, you look at the series now and you know you'd say well you know the Astros were favored and it's one one okay but i think you did the calculation for us the previous week Adi, that in some sense the astros had like a 55% chance or somewhere around there to win each game it's not like one one is like oh my god let's 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 adjust the odds like now the phillies are the favorite come on no no not at all that, no, fact, no 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 yeah. i'm just saying i'm i'm saying i'm trying to build consistently with what you said that a one one outcome is not, is there's no no there's no statistical test you could do that would still that wouldn't reject. Sorry, it wouldn't not reject the null that fifty five forty five is still the probability here, and that the Astros are still you know maybe they've moved from mine. It's still now a five game series. There's greater variance, but 
Maybe the Astros have gone, I think, from 180 to 165 or something like that to win the series. But it's not – they're not 170. Okay, so they started so, the series so at 180 home, but home or Home field didn't get in there. I, I was surprised that they were as long as they were, given that they grabbed home field advantage. But you're saying it's just, it just doesn't move it around that much. There's it no update on the relative probability, but on home field, there should be a little bit of a tweak. There should be a little bit of the tweak. And actually, Tiny point, bit. Kate, it might well be that, well, although most sample pass at the start of the series had the Phillies playing probably at least three home games anyway. So it's not like the Phillies are getting more home games than one would have expected. I don't think there's a lot of sample pass that had the Astros winning. I, in okay, that, that, makes a, that makes a ton of sense. That's helpful. Looking at the odds for the outcome, there are six different outcomes possible from this point forward. The shortest odds by far are Astros at six. And I, I'm glad that I, um, they, we, were, we were solicited for our predictions of the series. And I, I gave the 4-2 Astros, I think Eric, no, 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 Shane, who was it? Eric went with the Phillies. He was the loyalist. I went for the Phillies in seven. Uh, Kate, Adi went with, with the Astros in seven. And Shane went with you, I think, the Astros in six. In so I'll, I'll give you my thinking. I would, so one of the things that's, uh, it, if I actually take the number 0.55, and by the way, I work, I, I work that backwards from the Vegas um, the way I calculated, right. Vegas odds were 62 It was a negative binomial. What's the probability that gets you to four wins? Right. So I asked, I said that the number of wins is a negative, the number of losses before four wins is negative binomial. I calculated the probability that there would be three or fewer of them. And that, and that, the, and that, and the one that matches 0.62 is 0.55. So, and I, I, by the way, I checked your math and you were correct. Oh, thank you. Very <laughs> I, want to, I, want to, I want to clarify the 0.62 you're trying to match is what you know to be the series implied probability Correct. for series, and mm-hmm. you're trying to back out of it a game level probability. Exactly, because so that. that's not given. So I did that using the negative binomial, and, and Eric checked it. I, I got an A on my homework, thank God. And, uh, and the answer is 55%, which, by the way, it means that basically in the first two games, uh, oh, 1 and 1 versus 0 2 are almost dead identical. They're nearly identical 50% probability. So we essentially learn almost nothing um, by having uh, one one. It's a very it's the fifty percent outcome. O two. If it had been O two Phillies, we'd obviously they'd be in a deep hole. Um, but to, and and uh, so one one is a very common outcome. We really just shouldn't update that fifty five percent by anything. Probably just leave it exactly where it is. Okay. Uh, Four to two is probably the best outcome in terms of modal probability or maximum probability, modal probability. But I went for seven because there's something magical about World Series in seven games. They get into them far more often than you expect. Yeah, and that's a great stat, by the way. I've I've heard that stat many times, many, many times. Do we have any explanation for the magic? I know that's the meaning of magic is we can't explain it, but what is the I'll give you my theory right now. Uh, I think that probability went up in the 2-3-2 format versus the 2-2-1-1-1 format. Like, there's an easy story to tell with your home field, Kate, quickly, that the Phillies win two of three, and then they go back to Houston. That's why I'm picking the Phillies in seven, because I'd rather be the, I'd rather be any team up three, two, and I don't care if they play in a sandlot or where they're playing. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so if they take two of three, then the Astros have to sweep when they go back. And that's all, that's a very plausible story. Um, and Adi's saying, actually, it happens more often than you would expect by chance. And so that fueled his push to take the seven game prediction. All right, guys, that's been a quick Q1. We have three more quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. 
Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics rolling into the second quarter. Now we are delighted to welcome back onto the show, Stephen Godfrey. Stephen is one of the best college football writers, followers, commentators out there. We have talked with Stephen over the years, many times, first time this year, and we're delighted to get a chance to do that. Joining me this, this quarter is Eric, our, our, front, our friend Shane and Audie are away right now, but Eric is in for the duration. We're going to dig in, get a chance to catch up with Stephen, and along the way, talk about what's going on in the world of college football as we round the corner coming up on the home stretch. Stephen, good to have you. Thanks for coming back on the show with us. Thanks for having me, as always. Absolutely. So Stephen is a writer at SB Nation. You can follow him on Twitter. Great follow, at 38Godfrey, at 38Godfrey. And he's got a couple of new ventures bouncing around. We'll hear more about them in a little bit. But just to give you a quick heads up, at Secret Base is the Twitter account for one of his ventures. And the Split Zone Duo, great, relatively new podcast out there, Split Zone Duo. They've got a Twitter account. They've got a Patreon account. But you can also just subscribe and catch their regular shows as well. Split Zone Duo. He does that with Richard Johnson and Alex Kirshner also college football writers. Steven, listen, man, we haven't talked with you in a little bit. We haven't had a chance to get your take on the 2022 season. Always curious what you're thinking about. Always curious what storylines most have your attention. What, what's top of mind for you right now? The very top of mind, if we started 10,000 feet, is that I feel like this sport more than any other is perpetually focused on five years from now. And that's not to say that professional leagues and other college athletic, uh, you know, other college sports don't have the future in mind with their decision-making, but because of the postseason system specifically, and then right under that as a secondary is, of course, name, image, and likeness, there is so much either future-proofing or prognosticating going on. It is funny to me because it feels like we're not it, – it's almost like the football season is happening underneath our feet, <laughs> uh, at, least, at least inside the industry. That's not to say that fans don't care what's happening. That's not true at all. It's just that the shape of this sport – is changing so rapidly. And we know now that it's going to change for the next couple of years that uh, it's hard not to think about when this is going to stop and what it's going to look like when it does. Right. You, well, just, just, Steven, just, just to be clear, are you referring to the nil aspects of the sport, the transfer portal? Are you referring to the, ex- the expansion of the college football playoff or all three are really changing. Well, let me add a fourth. The fourth is conference realignment. <laughs> right. Conference, oh, sorry. Conference realignment. Yes. yes. Um, what normally would happen once every eight to 12 years and occupy a summer is now basically every single day of our lives. When we're talking about the sport <laughs> of the industry, we're not, look, we're not talking about who's going to be announced in the playoff pairings this week. We're not, we are talking about, you know, let's, let, let's start, I guess on the smallest thing. Conference realignment is occurring because specifically there seems to be, I think this is inarguable now, and I don't think it's controversial to say this, two mega, two mega conferences that who knows, maybe one day there'll be a super conference emerging here and their benefactors are the television providers in question. So you have basically right now ESPN and the SEC and then Fox and the Big Ten. Right. And everyone else, it's not like we're getting rid of, of football in California or West Texas or the Rockies. It's just that there's going to be a noticeable difference when you look at athletic budgets for departments because of television revenue. And then the trickle down into the sport is how many, uh, how many off-field analysts can you hire? How many trainers can you hire? Can you have yeah. a, can you have a uh, staff psychiatrist that does this or that? Or, 
uh, you're going to see a difference in overall quality of life, but also just the function of these programs when you leave those two conferences and you go to what we used to call the Power Five. So number one is the emergence of the Power Two. About to play Can out. I just, let me just searches. ask a question yeah. about that. Let me just, since we're also, besides obviously we're a sports show and analytics show, do you think that the other conferences, you know, I keep, I remember in business all the time, we can't compete on money. Maybe we won't be able to compete on athletes, but damn, we'll compete on analytics. Do you see analytics potentially playing a bigger role if it turns out that the rich are going to get richer in the big two and that maybe the other three join the, you know, non-Power 5 conferences and now they have to invest even more heavily in using data science? Or do you not see Eric, free Eric hold on. Let me, is, are you drawing, would, it, would, it, would it be safe to draw an analogy? Godfrey is a big uh, Braves fan as well. Poor guy. Oh, he's had a good run lately. Um, but... Baseball World Series. I know. Up until then, I I forget these things. Um, The Indians and the A's would be classic examples of an analytics approach to kind of counterbalance the big dollars. Eric, is is that one way of asking your question, Eric? Is there such a play to be made in college football? Well, the problem is this: there has to be. But but what scares me the most, and maybe this will be kind of come to to the delight of the analytics community, is that the high dollar programs are also investing in analytics. That's good news to hear because I think it makes the, the sport smarter overall. But there's going to have to be something that's counterintuitive or something that's bespoke to some of these, you know, mid-major programs or some of these smaller budgeted schools moving forward. I'll give you just an example. Almost 20 years ago now, we saw the emergence of Boise State, right? So why did Boise State succeed in the pocket in which it did? It wasn't financially. It wasn't really geographically, although in the 20 years that have passed, Boise has become a very, you know, it's one of those places you always see in those USA Today rankings where people are moving to that doesn't necessarily equate to college football talent. What they did was they recruited underneath some sleepy programs in different parts of California and the West and Texas, and then they schemed their way out of situations, or I guess through situations, you could say. Classic example being that famous Fiesta Bowl against Oklahoma, right? Greatest football game ever played. Keep going. (laughs) you know, a team that was better position to position. I mean, almost, uh, I would say at almost every position. So we are going to have to find a new way to create Boise's if we are going to keep this sport compelling. Because right now, the Boise's of yesteryear have moved into the power positions at these, at these, you know, legacy brand schools, Alabama and, you know, Florida and USC, et cetera, et cetera. We have to, uh, it's my belief to keep this sport engaging and interesting. You have to find a way to at least hold serve. Now, this sport has never really rewarded an underdog, if you think about it. In fact, it actively kind of punishes a usurper. They usually tend to find ways to close rules and to push those people out. The current playoff structure has been a great example of that. The bowl structure was a perfect example of that. So mm-hmm. I think now, now we can move on to playoff expansion, okay? That's going to change the calculus financially for about 50 to 70 schools. And what I mean by that is this. If you, have a, if you have a school, so let, let's use my alma mater right now, uh, Ole Miss and Lane Kiffin. Lane Kiffin being rumored for the open Auburn job will be rumored for other open jobs as they come. It is safe to say, in fact, I can could, I could say this you know, analytically and just, I guess, emotionally or logically, Ole Miss is not a playoff team. It's not a program you go to, to to become one of the four teams that competes for a national title every year. However... If you're fielding if you're fielding 12 teams, we don't know exactly what the rubric's going to be. We don't know what the selection criteria will be, but we have a rough idea. The, the SEC and the Big Ten are the reason why they're championing expansion of the playoff now is because they're going to jam the ballot. That's I think <laughs> right. pretty obvious, right? Right. 
They're going to stuff it with four to five teams each. That, I have no think. problem with that. Matter of fact, I Cade knows I'm Mr. Underdog. I'm fine with them having three, four each. Just let three or four others in and let's see what happens. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I've long been a proponent. And I, and I, I mean, I, also, I, I feel like the Cincinnati inclusion last year was almost semantic to a certain degree. And I think it was a way for them to say, here, we did it. Now shut up. <laughs> um, but it's just, so let, let's hang tight off of the G5 thing for a second. So let's say you're at an Ole Miss. Let's say you're at an Oklahoma State. Let's say that you're at a let's let's say North Carolina State has an 11 win season, but they don't win the ACC and they're one of those at large teams. Well, now feasibly, feasibly, you have a path to appearing in the postseason, and then you get to sell that to your boosters. You get to yeah. sell that to corporate sponsors. You get to sell that through all the third party licensing deals that you do, both as an institution and a conference. Yeah. So there's a this is going to change the decision making matrix for both the coaches, the players, but also the universities themselves. Because to call, you know, that, we can jump to any other sport for a second. If you call someone a perennial playoff team, there's a certain gravitas to that, and there's also a way to make your career off of that, right? College basketball is a great example. So and so retires. Oh, he how many? He led him to X amount of Sweet Sixteen. All that means is that you lost later, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that you won a title. Well, but there's an also brand inherent to that. Yeah, the other advantage is something that I think everybody wants is, you know, you could be a one or two loss team and, you know, thus quote unquote season's not over. Now all of a sudden regular season games for a 6 and 2 team is like, wait a second. We could get to 11 and 2. We could be one of the 10 through 16 well, seeds and so- that's yeah, exactly. Let's just be precise. It's well, only twelve, only twelve in football, but yeah. they're talking about yeah, um, 12, conference, sorry. conference, the, the the top six conferences, and so um, that's the power fives, obviously, in most in most situations. But I'll give you an example: Texas, just a not hypothetical, not a oh, randomly a chosen one. Texas is <laughs> disappointing, um, but they're not out of the Big Twelve race yet, and if they won out, they're probably going to make. I think they're pretty much guaranteed to make the Big 12 championship. So even after even after three losses, and Texas might just have enough talent to be scary if they did get into the playoff. And so it's an example of that the conversation around here would be entirely different in the playoff era, in the 12-team playoff era. If you have, I mean, so let's use the Phillies, for example, or let's use the Braves last year, or any number of wildcard teams in the NFL who have done this before. I don't know if college football's power brokers have necessarily thought about that because we've just, we just don't have, we don't really have examples of that historically because of the bowl system. It's a one and done. You've never seen a team that let's, let's use your example for, you know, takes three losses into the postseason and then goes on a run. Yeah. It's possible. It could definitely happen. And I think when it does, you'll have some purists cry foul. Steven, I just want to build on what you said. I don't even need Texas to go on a run. I just want Texas to make it and to beat Georgia. I, they don't need to go on a run. Just win a buy. Texas Georgia would have a buy, but whatever. If, if they're assuming they're yeah. going to have four buys and then five through eight is going to play nine through twelve, I want to just see them play. I don't know Alabama, Texas, and just beat one of those teams. Have one great win in the playoff. They can get eliminated after that. I'd be okay. Hey, they made the final eight. Let's talk about Georgia and Tennessee for a second. You took this game in a twelve-team season, a twelve-team playoff format season. Yeah. Yes, I will concede that it would lose some luster. That's right. I would also tell you what. Why? But here's the deal. I would tell you. But but here, let me finish. I would tell you this: those involved in this industry know it would not suffer Nielsen, right? So it's not going to suffer a raw viewership. It's not. Okay. 
It, now, some of the stakes might be removed and you might see a percentage, de- you know, a, a single percentage point decline kind of thing. That game still has quality. They yeah. are going to work aggressively in their messaging and recharacterize it as positioning, for instance, right? I'll get like, you know, in the NFL, we, we're, we're taught to believe like, well, you don't want to go to Green Bay in January. And that's why this game in November is so important, right? Right, that will be right. the same kind of narrative that we establish in college football. So yeah. they've got to reframe it a little bit, but I don't think they're worried too much about losing any quality of re- regular season product because these teams usually only see each other once. Yeah. The monsters are still going to be monsters. That's exactly right. And Steven, it strikes me that, you know, when people talk about, well, right now we worry about who's going to make the top four and then we'll talk about who's going to make the 12, but we also have conversations. There's kind of three different margins. It's like, in the 12-team playoff world, there's three distinct tiers of teams. One is who's going to get that bye. So which Power 5 conference winner is going to be kicked out and not get the bye? And then the next tier is who's going to get the home games in that first round? That's a significant thing. And then you get to the third margin, which is who's going to make it in there. And so you've actually multiplied the conversation, and you've brought more teams sure. and more And everybody's happy. The top four teams – I mean, not the fifth team may not be as happy, but the top four, they get the bye – the next four get a home game, and the last four are the bronze medalists. They're just happy they're in. So win, win, win. <laughs> Let me tell you this. Happy. The first revision they're going to make to this format is they're going to pull those games off campus. I, it's just a, it, it, it's a foregone oh. conclusion. Oh, really? They're doing that Let's right do now. That. Yeah, they, 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 that's, that's semantics right now, to be honest. Because it's too much money to walk away from in some way? I, I think there is, there's some concern about logistics campus to campus. I mean, okay. if, you're in the, if you're in the college sports world, you know what I'm talking about. A lot of these places are not well suited to host events quickly. Okay. Like there's, there's, a, there's an apparatus to these things. So, so, you know, if it is Oxford, Mississippi, or if it's Manhattan, Kansas, there's a lot to do very quickly. It depends on the kind of notice that they would have to prepare for it. And then eventually I just think corporate sponsors, you're going to end up having more bidders for more NFL facilities. I mean, that's the more volume they can put in those buildings, they're going to do it. And also they can charge $350 a ticket. Okay. Well, so you're, you're making that middle margin less interesting by giving away the home field. You'd still have uh, the higher seeds, I suppose. And so you get a better draw. That fifth seed gets to play the 12th seed, um, which is an yeah. advantage. Um, but it does make it less interesting if you're not hosting a home game. A whole lot interesting and less interesting. Well, no, no, hang on. Let me, let me, well, let me clarify. They will, they will keep that for the first couple of years. I just, a, lot, okay. a lot of people I talk to just think upon re- eventually they'll, they'll look at their margins and go, we, we can expand by going to neutrals here. Now, one thing that I will say that, that the football power brokers have done is really pick apart what works and actually what doesn't work in March. And what doesn't work in March is we see this all the time. It's like, congratulations, North Carolina. You're the two seed in the West Regional. We have you <laughs> tipping off at one o'clock on Tuesday in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> and so what do you, what do you get? You get these games that we see and they're dead. They're just dead. They're dead. Right. They want to avoid that. And yeah, that's how right. on campus, that's I, how I'm on hope, campus stayed in the agreement. I'm hoping, what they, I'm hoping what they do. I agree with that assessment. I'm hoping what they do is they keep at least the first two rounds with the home team. And once you're down to four yeah. teams, then you can play it anywhere you want. And I'm hoping that's at least what they do for the first couple of years to see how that works. I want the five to eight to get a home game. I want the one to four to get a home game. I don't think, that, four. but I don't think that second one's going to hold, Eric. Is that right? See, I think the second one, the second round already is meant to be like the next, the the second tier of bowls. Right, right, right. New Year's yeah. six bowls. The bowls, are, yeah. So the bowls will start bidding out proposals to figure out 
oh. uh, ro- like rotation frequency. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, they're, they're, you can't kill them. It's a horror film. Some of these bowl committees, I mean, I, I know the, <laughs> the rose is structured differently. And the rose deals specific, like all of the contracts from branding to television is bespoke to the rose. People, I think people kind of forgot that when the playoffs started, the rose keeps its own contracts. Right. And and ABC ESPN right now, they acquiesce to that. And then what they say is, oh, we won't put a bowl game against you. We won't we won't put a bowl game opposite you. We've okay. we've then that, that that's a rant for another day as someone who's southern and not Midwestern or Californian. Um <laughs> that will have to change. That will have to change. But I'm gonna tell you right now, these committees, which are largely efforted by representatives of the stadiums, it, which is sometimes representatives of the NFL teams, then like you'll have, you know, you, you guys still have me. I'm sorry. I yeah. Yeah, we for a second. That's interesting. Yep. yeah. So these, these, rep- these representatives will be like, you know, uh, how many times can we do Atlanta for the peach and not impede on the SEC championship game? For instance, yeah, right? right. Right. Yeah. So super interesting. I want to change gears. Let's remind everyone we're talking to Stephen Godfrey. He is on Twitter at 38 Godfrey, longtime football writer, observer, commentator. You can follow him on his new podcast as well at Split Zone Duo, Split Zone Duo. But again, good follow on Twitter at 38 Godfrey, longtime friend of the show. Stephen, we're going to, we, I love the big picture stuff in college and it's so dynamic. It's something we're going to have to check back with you on soon and hearing your enthusiasm for it we'll we will want to but i do want to drop into the 2022 season and a couple yeah. things let's talk about a game one game an obvious game for this weekend uh, uh maybe another team from the sec and then all the coaching stuff that's going on right now because i know you're getting yeah, you're, you're getting buzzed you're getting pulled away from interviews so you could on stay on yeah. top of the coaching carousel first um, Tennessee, Georgia, Georgia, eight point favorite or so. Where, where do you think this game's going to go? And how much of a believer are you in Tennessee? What kind of potential is Tennessee? Do you think Tennessee could win the whole thing? Oh, gosh. You're talking about the national title? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, I don't know. The, the only thing that's different to me this year is I, I don't know if any of those top end teams have shown that kind of flash where you would think that they could take, they could take out all of the remaining four to five. And so what I mean by that is I felt like about this time last year, we knew Georgia could, could really solve anything that Ohio state or Alabama or any, you know, on down the line, they're sort of interchangeable in certain ways in terms of their weakness. One of the things that hasn't happened in Tennessee yet is they haven't been put off schedule. Alabama came closest, but one of the things that I think was so vital in that Alabama game was that Tennessee was able to open fast, stay on schedule. And if anything, I think more adjustment was made by Alabama than Tennessee. And so when you're going punch for punch with a team that's built and very comfortable doing that, that is usually not going to work out for you. So I, I really, and I, and I know Tennessee started strong in this game last year. I know they did, but to me, the first quarter is going to tell me that what's going to happen here against Georgia. And I, and I want to see the cow. I want to see a caliber defense that's able to do this and it, like to take you off schedule without selling out. And what I mean by that, and yeah, not yeah. to get too schemey for a second, but just, yeah. you know, if, if you can get pressure with three or you can get pressure with four, Tennessee hasn't seen elite man coverage. You haven't seen an 11 man defense that's this good and that you're able to keep rhythm because so much of what Tennessee does is not beating you in chess. 
it's playing checkers so fast. You're not ready for the next move. That's really good. That, that's really helpful. Um, one, I want to do, well, Eric's got to follow up I on that. I just a question about this game. Does the winner of this game give themselves the luxury of having another loss, but still making it to the championship? I would, I would be shocked if the winner of this game is not in the four. I don't see. Are you talking about the playoff four? Are you talking about the yeah? NFL that's what game? I meant. Does the winner of this game almost guarantee themselves? I it's almost an, uh, yeah, yeah. It becomes an auto bid. Yeah, definitely. And I know that they're both they're on the same side of the um, you know, the conference and all that. But yes, we've seen this before when LSU and, and Bama have done this. Um, you know, barring total implosion, yeah, I think the winner of this game you can you can put in the playoff right now. Don't ask me what seed. Yeah, right, Stephen. Uh, the fourth quarter of the Ohio State Penn State game was terribly interesting. And do you take away from that just the game in general that Ohio State is flawed, or do you take away, oh my God, they can suck all day and then completely blow the doors off of things for ten minutes at the end of the game and beat a very decent Penn State team? It might be a little bit of both. Um, mm-hmm. I do think that I I kind of came around on this game. I watched this game live, and then I was talking about it with some of the analysts, people that I exchange information with, and. You know, I'm always in a learning capacity there. I don't ever want to say, well, I thought it was this. Yep. You know, anything I say on a show like this, I'm passing on from people smarter than me. <laughs> I think this I, I think this was a comforting game if you're an Ohio State fan in hindsight because Jim Knowles was able to, when this offense started to hiccup and started to show signs of normalcy, that Jim Knowles defense really started to dictate terms on Penn State. And then, I mean, you go from, I think it was like nine minutes left in the game, and you go from Penn State taking the lead for the first time, and then a minute—I think it was a minute of game time three, later, yeah, minute three, five seconds—three plays. Three plays. You um, are you are two you are ahead by two possessions if you're Ohio State. Oh, so four plays. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. They were sleepy. They were sleepy. I, I think obviously they're still missing the one receiver. Um, this has not been as effective and just and just sort of wire to wire dominant on offense. But I will say this: that did not serve them well against a Michigan team that was able to hit six and seven and six and seven running inside and outside on them. So I do think this is a more versatile Ohio state team and yet also less talented and less explosive on offense. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Eric's got to follow up on that. Yeah. So do you see Ohio state as the clear class of the big 10 or do you see Michigan with uh, a reasonable chance there against Ohio state? I do, but I just, who cares what I think? I'm going to go to someone smarter than me. What do you think? Um, I, in coaching circles that everyone still feels like it's not a one, one, a, it's a one and a two. Is that right? And yeah. And I, and you know, look, some of that is biased. I think, I think too, coaches are no coaches are human too. People who work in the industry who just study scheme are human too. When you've seen, you know, year after year, a, a decade plus of dominance from one team in this high end rivalry, I do think it installs a little bit of bias. Because most of what I just said about Ohio State and Penn State, you could apply to Michigan, Michigan State. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and it, it's going to be fascinating when that game when yep. that game happens. How versatile can Michigan be on offense? Like, what? Who are they post Gaddis? I still don't really know. Yep. Um, and, and then you know, not to borrow for myself, but I do think that's when that game happens in a couple of weeks. It's going to be di- it's going to be determined by the first quarter. I okay, really so they're playing that. in the regular season. So I ask the same if you're if what you're saying is true. Okay. I ask the same question okay. again: Are if they're playing in the regular season, does the winner of that game? Let's assume they go undefeated in that game, into that game, both. Yes. Games, does the winner yeah. of that game I, also book their ticket to the championship? I would say almost certainly, provided there isn't a 
really bad loss the following week to what looks like Illinois. I can't even You're say right. that. <laughs> Illinois. <laughs> um, representing the West, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be yeah, a good way to miss out is to lose, to drop to Illinois in, in the Big yeah. Ten Championship. Week. Well, I, and I think but that's that not happening. That would, that would be the only thing the committee could do is pock them for a particularly bad loss because win quality is going to be comparable. And I'm, I'm, I'm scanning in my brain. I'm thinking about, you know, uh, well, no, yeah, because Notre Dame's going to end up being a wash in terms of a quality win in non-conference play. Like, yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that would have to be well, the case. So I mean, Steve, we can me draw get- up the- let me yeah. just quickly give you one doomsday scenario, just quickly. Michigan okay. beats Ohio State. Michigan then loses to Illinois in the Big Ten game. None of the three, none of the three teams go to the playoff. Please just tell me that's possible because every <laughs> our listeners for eight and a half years know this is the kind of shit I live for. Just please tell uh, me that's possible. Uh, Forget probable. I said if that happens, do you agree that all three of those teams <laughs> might not go? So you have a you have a one loss, and I was actually there for that loss because I am a sicko and went to the Illinois Indiana game. Um, you have a one loss Illinois theoretically. Actually, let's say two because they actually have enough room to lose another game. So I'll, I'll make this even more fun. A two loss Illinois team wins the Big Ten. They would almost certainly not go to the playoff because you would have, in some capacity, off the top of my head, I need a couple. I need a couple qualifiers here. So we're assuming two teams in the SEC in this equation. We would not have an outside G five team this year because Tulane has a loss. Let's go with um, uh, yeah, because you would still have a formidable Clemson, provided there's no implosion, and then we still haven't discussed like USC. So yeah, I think it's possible. Stephen, let's drop down. Let's drop down. I'm, I'm dismissing the whole thing because Illinois is not going to win the big. <laughs> um, let's drop no, down. They're not. Let's go back to the South and run through a quick couple of SEC issues to get your deep expertise on that. Um, I'll just name them all and we can, we can collect them before we have to wrap up. What, what is your take on Alabama? Um, who's Auburn going to replace Harson with? Um, is, is, is Brian Kelly already doing a good job at LSU? And what in the world is A&M going to do with Fisher and all that they're stacked up, um, unable uh, to move? Let's go backwards. Um, I I said this on Split Zone Duo. We have a patron show on Sunday nights where I just take sort of fresh information from sources, talk to the patrons about it. They can ask questions. And uh, when it came to A&M, this was before the Ole Miss loss. This was after the South Carolina loss. I said, I literally did not ask a single person in the college football industry about it. I went to, I have a couple of friends who work in oil and gas who are boosters and sources. Um, and I went straight to them and I said, tell me what o- OPEC plus is doing. Tell me like how deep pocket, I- I'm not kidding. I was like, tell me how long we have to have these stunts and how long we have to have, you know, uh, heating shortage anxiety in Europe for, cause you know, Shell just did a, a big stock buyback on, on, uh, Q3 revenue. Yeah. The re- I'm not joking when I say no, this, I, I'm, this I, is not a joke. So you're, you're when, saying basically that at what point is 85 get stupid and what point yeah. is the 85 not stupid. And that's, because I'm a nihilist in this, in college football. I, I'm not a nihilist in life, but in college football, I am. I don't think we've seen the bottom yet when it comes to financial depravity. There's no oversight here. There isn't. There's, there's no commissioner telling Jerry Jones you can't do that. And so everyone keeps saying, well, they'd never spend $85 million. Why? Like, what? No, like, like it, you tell a group of angry Texans not to do something, they'll do it to spite you. Like, this is – especially those Texans, like, like – a bunch of oil and gas. Hey, yeah. Like, that's I, interesting. I mean, are you, 
Are you kidding? I didn't, like, I didn't know we were going to talk world energy prices and its connection with college football, but I think you've made a very nice connection. That, that makes sense to me, and I'll always go with the nihilistic view when it comes to college football as well. Speaking of which, Brian Kelly, I mean, uh, I think expectations were pretty tempered when he moved to LSU. Yeah. The fit seemed weird. They seemed to be playing decent ball. Oh, it still is. It's still weird. So this is really my question. It's like how, how stable a situation do you think that is down there and how well do you think they are doing the, the team LSU? I do think they're benefiting from a lot of consistency that he's brought and not having Scott Woodward and Ed Orgeron at each other's throats, which was kind of the last two years of that program. Okay. Um, I mean, look, Woodward wanted Orgeron out from day one. He settled on Kelly after he couldn't get Fisher and a couple guys. But so far, I think Kelly's put together a really nice staff. I think Mike Dimbrock caught a lot of unnecessary flack as they were developing Daniels and kind of figuring out who they were on offense. Yeah. Which I still, I look, I still think, and I, I don't watch every team's games, but every time I dip in on LSU, it definitely looks like it's the entire offense is in progress, right? The okay. defense to me, the defense and what Matt House has done there, I think has been really remarkable. Okay. And I think that there's a, I think what you're seeing there is the early signs of a system of evaluation, player development, et cetera, that could bear fruit in a couple of years. I think we might be ahead of our skis because they've had some good weeks. Yeah, right. That's, that's, I want to temper it because we tend to overreact to a couple of good seasons, a couple of good weeks. I, I want to ask yeah. in the Kelly and in the Harson, and then we can keep on going. We can go and you know, we, the role of fit basically, because, because analysts will say, Years before it actually happens, they'll say, it's just a weird fit. In college football, it seems yes, like yes. The, guy, the guy has to culturally fit in some way. At least it makes a big difference whether he culturally fits. Is that true? And how big a factor is that? And is that, a, is, I mean, that, that doesn't sound optimal. You, so you're telling me Brian Harson, who was highly thought of as an offensive coordinator and then a coach, he just, you can't put Harson in Auburn because he doesn't fit culturally? But then what's the limit of that? Because you take well, okay. Scott, Scott so Frost is like yeah. the perfect cultural fit for Nebraska, and that's a disaster. Right. So culture fit is, yeah, culture fit is a blanket that's sort of just used to throw over problems. I'm going to be honest with you. Look, you know, culturally, Brian Kelly and, and Louisiana don't work. I, I say that as someone who married into a Louisiana family, and, and <laughs> like Kelly has, a pretty, Kelly has a pretty terrible reputation in terms of his personality across the industry. No one really argues with his results. Uh-huh. We're all kind of waiting. We're all waiting with arms folded to see is, you know, Kelly got so many Notre Dame teams to a, to a national title cusp. And then we saw what happened when he did not have the talent of the true, you know, top one, two, three, four, five teams. We saw that a bunch of a bunch. Kelly's gambling on himself and saying, well, if I take my system to the SEC, I can be a national title coach, right? That's what we're all, well, that's, yeah. that, that's the experiment that we're conducting here. Yep. LSU yep. is a fine place to do that. Obviously they can win national titles. The jury's out. I think they've got some fun results early. However, culturally, what's funny about LSU is the the culture that the LSU brass wanted, the culture that the high dollar, the NIL, the NIL, NIL boosters and their initiatives and, and, and the money people wanted was not Louisiana. They didn't want the Cajun. They didn't want the guy who was, who was gruff and who was blue collar. Okay. They have longed since Nick Saban left them at the altar in 2006 for an executive style, a statesman, if you will, in a Southern okay. parlance. Interesting. And that's what, that's what Kelly, a, a born and bred Yankee from Boston, gives them. They make, he makes the country club feel really good. <laughs> and if they're going to lose games, it's never going to be in a catastrophic manner, okay. right? 
that's what LSU is asking for after okay. so many years of less miles. That's and interesting. then the, the, okay. the peaks and valleys of, of Ed Orgeron. Okay. Okay. Well, that takes us to Auburn. Um, I know it's a different enterprise down there, probably even more complicated than LSU. You've been on this. It's a cult. It's a cult. And they're, the cult is obsessed with, also talk about obsessed with Saban, right? In Alabama. Yeah, I mean, I could like I could argue with a graduate thesis or write a book, and, and basically, look, it, the, the consistency of one program drove these others truly mad, truly mad, because <laughs> what they've done is they've established such ins- insane short-term deadlines uh, in terms of flipping, you know, utter chaos in these schools into immediate national title results. Yeah, Auburn is an example. LSU is an example. A and M is an example. Uh, sure. Auburn, in this instance, their problems go actually further back than Saban. And, and that's the, basically they've lacked a centralized authority at the athletic director position and the school president position for a very long time. Okay. And because of that, you, you don't lose any emphasis on wanting to win or people who are passionate millionaires who are dumping money into the program. But when there's no general, there's no chief, everybody's a chief, right? Yep. Um, by the way, everything that I'm saying, if you're old enough, if you're listening to this and you're old enough, you remember I'm describing Alabama in about, th- about the year 2005. Okay. Oh, this okay. is not bespoke to, this is not anything specific to Auburn. This is just what happens when power programs in the Southeastern conference don't have good centralized authority. So Brian Harson should have never been hired, not really for Brian Harson reasons, but because there was never any faith in the hire because there was no, there's no faith in the former athletic director, Alan Green. Uh, and so, so much of what has to be done by the next hire has to be done off the field, away from football players, with the NIL initiative, with the big dollar boosters. You know, down south, whether you went to Auburn or not, we know the names of these people. We know names like Jimmy Rain, the yellow fella. Like, we know who these people are. Raymond Harvard, who's a business a, a banking executive. We know who these people are because Auburn has had so many sideshows and antics over the years of crazy meddlesome boosters. And, and infighting that it's just become commonplace. Mm-hmm. So the next football hire has to be someone who is as much CEO and statesman and politician, those things that is described Kelly as, as he is a schematic. And I think if you're looking for an overall trend right now in the industry, if you're, if you're looking for an investment strategy in personnel, which is what <laughs> that's essentially all colleges do is they figure out, I've got to make a $10 million hire in one, usually in a poor state, and this, this person is going to swing my entire, my, the results of my company, you know, the progress of my company. Right. Right. You, you are, we are now gearing towards CEO coaches like we have never okay. seen before. Okay. The days of the savant are ending. The days okay. of the schematic genius are ending because wow. scheme is not winning these games anymore. Personnel okay. is. Well, is, is Lane Kiffin matured enough to graduate from being savant to CEO? Oof. probably not to be totally probably honest not yet you. probably and, not yet yeah right yeah yeah just to be totally honest with you and i think i think in in ways that are maybe inadvertently beneficial to lane he's kind of stuck in oxford i do think that the hiring of john cohen the new athletic director at auburn who came over from mississippi state cohen's last major hire was a man named mike leach who's about as idiosyncratic as they come <laughs> Yeah. I think that is that would bode well and maybe increase the percentage chance of Lane Kiffin being hired by Auburn. I don't know if it's necessary. I don't know if the next Auburn coach can be a long-term solution. It almost feels like they kind of have to have a bridge coach for a little yeah, while, which by the way, you, I, I don't say that as a pejorative because Josh Heupel is a bridge coach. 
Oh, that's when Josh when Josh Heupel was hired, Tennessee was broke. They had just hired Danny White as their athletic director from Central Florida, and the market sucked flat out. People from Tennessee, the state I live in, were telling me we are not the five star destination we thought we were. We are in disrepair. So Heupel came in as a bridge coach with low level investment on Tennessee's part. And now Exante Bridge, and now he's going to be he's going to buy himself a, a long a long run probably. Well, I don't know. They're pretty tempestuous down there. Stephen, we could do this all day. I certainly could, um, but I have to let you go. Thank you for making time for us. Thank you for the catch up. Um, I didn't get a chance to find out whether you think Alabama's for real, but it's going to have to save for another another occasion. Appreciate all you're doing, Stephen. Look forward to hearing more from you about this season as it unfolds. Thanks, guys. Absolutely. Stephen Godfrey, writer at SB Nation. You can follow him on Twitter at 38Godfrey. He's also got a great podcast on Culture Football at Split Zone Duo, at Split Zone Duo. That has been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to the third quarter of this week's Wharton Moneyball. Just out of a conversation with Stephen Godfrey, one of our favorite people to talk to about college football. Good, healthy, length conversation with Godfrey about a few different issues in college football. Rolling into an open topics quarter. You guys can jump into the conversation in a way. We love it when you do. You can hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyball, at WMoneyball is our handle there. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports analytics, sports analytics, adjacent topics on occasion. Good way to reach out to us. You can also hit us up on email. It's our mailbag via email. The address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. In fact, we might lead with a, we might lead with the moneyball email just to get us going, because we want to talk about the NFL. We've got about 20 minutes here to talk about the NFL. Let me give you guys uh, a little taste of our mailbag. We got a question last week coming out of our conversation that I thought was very appropriate. And it was essentially asking, hold on, man. You said that the, 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 not we, the 538 says the Bills are 27% likely to win the NFL Super Bowl. And if you look at them right now, a week later, they were 28 last year week. They're 27 this week. And isn't that high? So Alec Rubel, Alec, with apologies if I've got your last name pronounced incorrectly, but Alec Rubel writes us. He says, I know you've spoken a bit recently about 538's overconfidence in favorites during the MLB playoffs and last year's NBA playoffs, especially vis-a-vis Shane's beloved coin flip model. As of time of my writing, 9 p.m. last Tuesday, 538 has the Bills' odds of winning the Super Bowl at 28%. They're still 27% this week. This strikes me as wildly overconfident. Even conditional on the Bills getting a bye, this would mean they have roughly a two-thirds chance of winning each postseason game. Are they really that much better than other playoff teams, say Bengals, Chiefs, Eagles? I know they're a statistical outlier in performance relative to the rest of the league, but I would have thought there's enough uncertainty to put their odds of winning each postseason game no higher than 60%. Curious to hear what you guys think. I want to give you a statistical observation first. Um, just to pin it down, because we do blame 538 for some of their models sometimes. But I ran, and on our show, while he's writing us this, he, he didn't know we were talking about it. I ran unabated sim last week with Massey Peabody numbers. So different sim, different inputs. And we got Bills 27% likely to win the Super Bowl. 
And so it actually, from two very different approaches, we end up at the same number. And it is shockingly high for being just past the halfway point for a team to have that high chance. Eric. Well, just quickly, um, the thing, the math, I, I really love the, 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 the example and the email and everything. I think the problem is the first game's not two thirds. First game's more. And so what I think, I think a fair set of odds would be maybe three quarters, 60%, 55%. You add those together you're right around 27% or mm-hmm. 25. So I think it's, it can easily be rationalized. They would be heavy, heavy favorites against the six seed, five seed, somewhere like that. I think it's not, it wouldn't be shocking if they were a three quarters favorite, there would be a favorite in the AFC championship game, but not more than 60, 40 and probably in the super bowl. I'm being conservative. I think depending on who they played to say at 55%. So I, I don't think if 27% is off, it's not actually off by that much, given those numbers. Eric, that all, it makes good sense to me. I just want to push you on one thing. You said versus the six or seven, they're going to sit out, presumably, the first round. And so no, no, I'm only having them play three games, right? I'm only having them play three games. But their games, first game four. will be against, against like the four seed. If it goes chalk, it would be against the four seed, presumably. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Right. So they would play the, potentially the four seed, which in the AFC could be, I don't know, a weak division winner. It could be the AFC whatever central division winner or something like that. Uh, I still put them at a 75% chance to beat that team, but good point. They're not going to be playing the seven. I want to add that they, they're just, this is one of those years where the top team really separates from the rest of the pack. And most of the power rankings are showing them a good field goal, a solid field goal better than the second best team, which is a big lead in the NFL. And that's going to make the separation even heavier as you move down to teams three, four, 10, as you move deeper into the, playoff roster Adi is looking skeptical yeah, I, at us Eric no I think that I think that you're you're actually right I think that I'd go further I think that the bills are sticking out but I also think that two through there aren't many many tiers in tier two and by the time you get to tier three it's like almost average in other mm-hmm. words this year uh, more so than yeah, usual this year more so than ever it just I think that in that first round it will be the fourth ranked team maybe but they're not going to be there's going to be a big gap Mm-hmm. Um, 75 seems really high or for, for notice it won't be fourth, fourth in the, in the league. It'll be fourth in the conference, conference. Be the right. fourth in the conference. In the conference. And, so, and, and it will be that's, probably that's no higher than fourth in the conference. Cause it might be the weakest division leader, which. Well, Adi, what, what, what would be the, uh, what would be the point spread that it would take roughly for them to be a 75% chance would it be a nine to 10 point favorite. Wouldn't that do it? Well, it all depends on what you're thinking is the standard deviation of a football game. If you go for about 12 and a half, which is usually what I think of it as the, as the, as the difference NFL. in the NFL, it's bigger in college. Um, well, if it's a 12 and a half lead, that's 84%. So uh, um, it's not that. So yeah, so I could see yeah. the Bills being yeah. an eight to nine point favorite somewhere yeah, in that range yeah. against, uh, uh, you know, even the, the four round. seed. And so that's great, Matt. Thank you, Friday, for the 12 and a half. So that's right. Mm-hmm. So actually... I'm actually feeling comfortable now at 70, 75% somewhere in that range. Given, I think it would be more than a touchdown spread. I do. And, and to go back to the way Alec was thinking about the thing, where the simple thing to push Alec on is he's using an average of two-thirds likely, but in fact, those games are going to be very different as they move from the division to the conference to the Super Bowl round. Okay, very good. Let's talk about the NFL more immediately. Anything jump out to you over the week eight games? Well, I, I mean, we were at the Eagles game and, yep, we enjoyed uh, it. <laughs> you know, oh. I mean, yeah, but I mean, the Eagles looked real good. The Eagles look good on both sides of the ball. I think um, 
I think the Eagles have a chance against any team that they play. I really do. I think they're, they seem to be well coached. They're a good offensive team, a good defensive team. Um, I think they're looking good. I think the Eagles are a strong team, but I think there's a number of, but I wouldn't put them at the same odds to make the Super Bowl as I would the Bills. I don't see, I mean, the Bills' major threat is probably the Chiefs, right? I, I don't, it's hard to imagine. Without no, those clearly those, yeah, that, those, those are the three teams, and only and two of them are in one conference. The Eagles don't, don't have such a competitor in the NFC. I don't, I don't see, right. I don't, I don't know how, what does Massey Peabody have? Who's the second best team in the NFC, and how, much, how many points are the Eagles better than that second best team? Well, I can give you the. We're a little slow getting them updated this week, and so I'm not looking at last week's number. But it's going to be after the Eagles. It's a great question. I'll, I'll dig it up in the next couple of minutes. But looking at 538's current one, yep, we can look at their ELO numbers, and and they they have ELO now that Prescott is back. They have the Cowboys right up there with the Eagles, and I can tell you that Duke, the power rankings we we jumped the Cowboys significantly when Prescott came back, and they are higher than I would have thought, and they are closer to the Eagles than than you might be intuiting, Eric. Right. It's also, by the way, what the um, the betting odds actually have the Cowboys not too far behind the Eagles mm-hmm. as well. So mm-hmm. the betting odds are consistent with that that the Cowboys are the second best team in the NFC. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so y'all went with Zach. Y'all went with our former student, former Wharton Moneyball intern, current full-time analyst for the Philadelphia Eagles, and you got to take that thing in in person. That's good fun. So I that probably means sun, you- I got a sun sunburn out there. It was a gorgeous day. I just want to throw that out. It was nearly seventy degrees and beautiful. I, I the thing that happened last week was that the I don't know if entirely, but I think you know the Giants and Jets are who they are. Like I mean. You know, I, I think despite the Giants being six and two and the Jets being five and three, um, they're not elite teams yet. And so, um, you know, I think a lot was revealed about the quality of those teams last week. And um, I think the Vikings were, again, continue to be somewhat impressive. Um, if, As Adi said, if there's two tiers, maybe the Eagles are the top tier in the NFC. I would personally put the Vikings and the Cowboys and maybe the 49ers who, you know, this is where that four and four is deceptive. The first week or two was Trey Lance. Now it's Garoppolo. To me, there's the Eagles, there's the Vikings, Cowboys and Niners. And then there's everybody else in the NFC. In the NFC, right, right. NFC. Well, you mentioned the Niners and coming out of your game. And so you probably didn't get to see it, but you know, that was a marquee game that Rams Niners, Rivalry has become one of the premier rivalries in the league over the last few years. And so it was, a, it was, it got a lot of profile there in the mid afternoon slot. And um, for most of the game, it lived up to the hype. And then the Niners really put it on them at the end. But if you're skeptical about the mid season blockbuster trade, you might think twice after watching what McCaffrey did in his debut game. Maybe he played the week before, but this was really his breakout game. Um, it, he was fundamentally he was the central piece of that offense. So he has these, he hit, he had the triple crown of TDs and it hadn't happened since 2005. It's only happened a handful of times ever. Just to be clear, just for everybody to be clear, he threw for one, ran for one and uh, received one. Just that's what you mean by the triple crown. Yeah. 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 So the pass happened early and it seemed like, okay, that's cute. And then, he, but he just kept on being, he, he kept on running for nice yards. He kept on being targeted in the passing game and it was striking how effective he was in that offense, at least in this game. And, I mean, 
you know, we're a little skeptical on, on using picks for these midseason trades. And we're, we believe that people might have overlearned the message of the Rams last year, making a few big trades at the expense of draft picks in order to push a team over the top. And we've seen the Eagles, your Eagles, we're just talking about the Eagles. They went out and got a defensive lineman they think is going to help them. This is increased. This used to be a baseball strategy. NFL is becoming like major league baseball with these trade deadlines happening right now. The deadline I think is today. And it was four o'clock earlier today. It's over now as we're recording. Okay. So this is this, it all also raises the question of the running backs and, and this is, there's a general question here about how do we properly value players who are really the kind of the best at their position or they're at the very top of their position. We tend to run these models and we get average position value. And we don't run many models that look for heterogeneity within a position and then maybe even, you know, convexity within a position where at the very top you get some unusual value. Have we done enough of that whenever we indict running backs as not being important? Have we really unpacked what the special are there special running backs? And when you if there are, might those guys really be? I I think the problem is it's not that there aren't special running backs. I think quickly just the the problem is the, the salaries and the contracts which is if you told me you could get McCaffrey, Saquon Barkley, uh, uh, Derek Henry, King Henry, uh, sure, I would take each of them on a one-year, $20 million contract, no problem. When they want four years for 80 or $90 million at age 27, which mm-hmm. you know to me is a big no-no, then that's the problem. But I agree with you. I think we're, you know, people make the statement, you know, running backs aren't that valuable. Yeah, well, Give me one of the top three running backs, and they're extraordinarily valuable. And I love them on rookie contracts. I'm just not going to sign them at age 26 or 27 to a four or five year deal. You know, I, as more or less what I was going to say, um, Eric. But I just I thought it's a little bit more complicated than that. I think that that if you look backwards in time, you find running backs who were extremely valuable, but it just doesn't carry forward. Not only into the two or three, four years out in a longer contract. But even to a certain degree, next year, the following year. Um, so I think absolutely, twenty-seven-year-old, no eighty million dollar four-year contract. Um, but I even think that you, if you take a, the great performance, take a, take a pick a running back who had a spectacular year, and and then how often do they do it again the next year? I mean, even obviously there's some regression to the mean, but even are they going to be atop the second year? How often do you see a, a strong? Running back is Elliott, uh, Saquon Barkley, and the next year either injured or nothing. By the way, I think, just to let you know, I was looking at this with a friend this morning. I think Zeke Elliott's only 27 years old, and he's considered washed up, just to Mm -hmm. let you know. (laughs) And I think we also looked at Derrick Henry, who was, you know, Derrick Henry's yards per carry the last two seasons are 4.3 and 4.4 this season. So just to let you know, the years of Derrick Henry averaging five yards a carry, I think, are also uh-huh. gone. And he's also 27 years old. So I, I, I agree with you, Adi. I think the difference between McCaffrey, though, which Cade pointed out, is he's not just a running back. He's also receiving the ball. He's an excellent receiver. He can play, in some sense, play wide out. Forget him throwing the ball. It was a gimmick play, although it was a very nice pass. I think the issue is that that's what people want. People want multi-purpose running backs that are excellent pass catchers. Now, that can justify a little bit longer of a contract. But I agree with you, Eddie. Well, that that was the direction that I I wanted to add, and that was how the guy is going to be used and how he fits a team's particular scheme. Now, of course, there are 
counterpoints to that argument. So, for example, the Chiefs running back selection out of LSU a few years ago, and they they is that they, Edwards Hilaire? Yeah, Edwards Hilaire, late first round, and people groaned. The analytics community groaned when they made that pick. They said, "Yeah, well, wait till you see how he works in our system." And then, you know, I think I think most people would say most objective outsiders would say I think that it's not clear that he was worth the first round pick. And so the system argument doesn't always go through. But I, I guess I'm reacting to my naive, knee-jerk skepticism about this trade and how wildly wrong I seem to have been based on one game. I don't want to overreact to one game, but, man, they deployed him effectively. And, man, it seemed to elevate that offense. And, 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 the, and, and as you know, Cade, the thing you guys have been talking to me about, maybe I've been underestimating the value of is, what are the chances that Christian McCaffrey is going to be healthy for nine more games in the playoffs? This is a that's guy right. with an industry, that's long right. industry history of injuries. And that's also, right. that's also why even Derrick Henry, who's, you know, forget McCaffrey, who's, you know, he's not my size, but you know what I mean? He's not a big, big man. You've got Derrick Henry, who's 6'3", 230, who can't stay healthy all the time right now. So my concern about McCaffrey is he's going to get injured again, and he may not make it through the whole season. Well, one of the things that we're seeing, I mentioned that there's kind of this analog to MLB and all the trades that happen. If you're, Are you a contender or are you not a contender? And the contenders buy up the best players off the teams that aren't contenders at the trade deadline. And football didn't do that for the longest time. And now we're seeing more of it. And I don't think, I think there may be an instinct among the analytics community to poo-poo on all of these, especially when you use picks to do it. And I think we have to we have to fight that visceral instinct and think, okay, hold on, maybe maybe there are times and places, and for the right price, it's utterly reasonable. And in fact, from an economics perspective, you want assets moving where they're more highly valued. I think, and you want flexibility for reallocating midseason once people find out whether they're competitive or not. And so, from a high level efficiency perspective, it seems like a good thing. And then, from an individual team's perspective. All that anything at any at the right price, right? You should be right. selling at the right price, buying at the right price. And so it really comes down. You shouldn't reject it philosophically. In fact, I think we should kind of like it philosophically. And then the question becomes the right price. Yeah. My only addition to that would be in some sense, I, I think maybe you disagree with this. Someone that obviously wrote one of the seminal papers on the draft. A lot of ways it's hard to assess how great is someone really going to be in the right tail based on the draft. And yeah. so now the question is, if you're going to play the right tail game for running back, do you play with a running back that's been out three or four years? And this is the you could see the the analytics balance here. On the one hand, you have more data and information. On the other hand, it's now a 26 year old running back and <laughs> right. he's got a, less of a lifetime. Yeah. And so but to me, I like the concept of I would never draft the running back early, given the uncertainty in the draft and the fact that a priori before seeing them in the NFL, a lot of running backs are more towards the center of the distribution. Do some separate them out? Yes, but you guys, I've heard you say this to me, Kate, a thousand times. Someone's going to separate themselves out, but who? Mm-hmm. Which running back is going to do that? And mm-hmm. I think at the running back position, it's hard a priori to know after the draft, at the time of the draft, and therefore drafting high doesn't have high option value at that point in time. With more information, it might make sense. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. We spend so much time trying to figure out which quarterback is going to be good, and, and we should. It's the most valuable position. Running back has some of the same difficulty to predict. And if the if it's true that 
there tend to be every now and then these running backs that do separate and add value. Have we put enough effort into figuring out what are those traits and can we identify them earlier? That's um, the you're, you're, you're naming one thing, Eric, especially in the game as it's evolved is the ability to contribute in the passing game. And um, that seems to be a feature. I mean, it's very different from Derrick Henry, of course, but that seems to be one way that teams are getting more value out of some of these backs. Okay, guys, um, we talked about the Eagles game this weekend. We talked about the Niners game this weekend. Anything else jump out to you about the games this weekend? Well, if you mean last, let's also talk about the upcoming weekend. I mean, Good. here's a game yeah. that's, yeah, here's just quickly, here's a game that surprised me a lot. We have the five and two Titans playing the at the five and two Chiefs without looking. Do any of you, maybe you guys looked at the rundown. Do you know what the point spread is in that game? It's at KC? Yes. Um, well, one, I want to dismiss the record to just think about what we know about the teams. I think the Titans have outperformed our expectations for them. I'm, I've not looked at our numbers for them. I'm going to guess that the Titans are squarely middle of the league, which means they should be around zero or small numbers above zero. The Chiefs are probably plus six or so. Their homes make it plus nine. I'm going to make it an eight-point line. Yeah, it's 12 and a half. Oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. And so, so that surprised me quite a bit that the Chiefs are favored by 12 and a half in that. And so um, that that game surprised me. And it's obviously it's one of those Titanic games in the sense that um, the Titans win that. You know, this could be for the two seed. It could be for the one seed. I mean, the, the winner of that game now has a two game lead on the other one, essentially one plus the tiebreaker. So this is a huge, huge game. And we'll find out, as you said, Kate, I think most of us believe the Titans have outperformed, maybe statistically, but put up or shut up time. This is a huge game for the Titans. Huge game. Did you take in any of the Bills game? Uh, last week's game? Yeah. 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 So the KC and I mean, I can't think about KC without thinking about Buffalo. These are going to be the two teams that it seems it's going to come down to. And so I'm always kind of wondering how one is evolving versus the other. And the Bills, they, they tried to give that game away, but I feel like it was never really in doubt. And they just seem to be, they seem to be the, the complete picture right now the complete and just lastly i'm not giving up on the ravens just yet well that's right they've been they've been and they're one of the teams that made one of these moves midseason move to go out and get a the leading tackler in the league and um that roquan should in theory should shore up their defense and lamar's lamar's got it in him yet so we'll see Okay, guys, that has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. We have an interesting interview on an adjacent topic, sports adjacent. It is sports, but it's adjacent to our usual sports, a topic for Q4. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the fourth quarter of Wharton Moneyball, traditionally our interview segment. We are rolling into an interview this segment. We've got a couple of co-hosts in here. Adi Weiner is still here. Eric Bradlow is still here. This is Cade Massey, and we are going to have the chance to talk to Steve Hall. Steve is the second CEO and commissioner of the American Ultimate Disc League. We're talking about Ultimatum. Many of you have played a casual version. Some of you have played a serious version of this sport. Steve is taking seriousness to a new level as the owner of a team in the AUDL and now the commissioner of the team. We're talking to Steve because they have taken advantage of analytics and they're trying to use analytics to better understand their game and popularize their game. And it's a good place for us to see how analytics get deployed onto new 
onto a new frontier. Steve, thank you for joining us. Okay, thanks so much. Uh, Really appreciate you guys having me on. Absolutely. Always fun to hear where analytics is being used, especially in the world of sports. And we look into various corners. Over the years, we've talked to, heck, we've had curling analytics on this show before. We're interested in analytics and how it gets used in all these different corners. Let us first understand, one, your background, and then two, this notion of an organized, serious league of ultimatum is is kind of the starting place. So first, how did you come to this? You were, if I'm remembering correctly, an engineer out of maybe Georgia Tech. I think you're an MBA out of Emory. You did some banking for some, I don't know, Goldman Sachs. Have you guys ever heard of Goldman Sachs before? (laughs) He's serious financial chops. And then somewhere along the line, you wandered into American Ultimate Disc League. Yeah, so uh, I did go to Georgia Tech, 8048. And I actually picked up Ultimate in 1985 as a sophomore. You know, when you're you're getting crushed by your chemical engineering classes, you need a little break. So uh, learn how to play Ultimate. And I've been that casual player ever since. Uh, you know, I still play now as a 56-year-old. I was at Worlds in Ireland, uh, one of four teams representing the U.S. And, you know, and I've, so I'm a geeky kid, but, uh, you know, and I kind of took that through – MBA in finance world at Emory and then up at uh, Goldman Sachs on the fixed income side. So I've loved numbers. I've loved ultimate. And when I get a chance to get involved owning a team and becoming CEO and commissioner in 2018 at AUDL, this was just a perfect world. You know, I'm getting to work in something that I love to do. And, you know, I'm a data as a new oil kind of guy. And, you know, we said, hey, you know, we think we know what a good ultimate player looks like. You know, one of those lanky guys, 6'2", you know, it doesn't seem to get more than 170 pounds and kind of has cool long hair. Well, that's <laughs> nice, but you know, does he produce on the field? And right. so we've really embraced this. We created a whole new uh, subsidiary called UltiX Technology, a little bit of BAM tech. Uh, we kind of took a page out of their book and said, hey, we need a whole entity that's going to house all of our data. And you know, whether we use it to improve players, understanding the, the total stats on the field, what's going on, how well they run, or player engagement, right? We feed the betting world. We're feeding a video game, digital collectibles, all that stuff. So we see analytics being used in in both parts of our business. So before we dive into how you're using the analytics in detail, give us the structure of the organization, structure of the league, so we understand it. And it sounds like you've got what is more common in some of the newer leagues. You've got kind of one ownership entity, or you've got some shared assets. It's not all just franchises. Do I have that right? Like the, the analytics speak, for example. Right, right. And so we're, we're much like the NFL. So the AUDL, that's the league. You know, we earn money like everybody else, sponsorships, media rights, things like that. And each of our, our 25 teams is individually owned. Okay. And then there's economic connection. So, you know, our teams go from Seattle, San Diego, Tampa to Montreal. So we cover all of North America. And what, is a, what does a team look like? What does it mean to be a team in your league? Yeah, so we've got, uh, so we have 30 people on the roster, 30 players, uh, 20 travel uh, from weekend to weekend. Uh, We have 12 games in the regular season. And so 20 guys travel. It's a seven on seven game. We play it on an American sized football field. And, uh, you know, our owners are a collection of, gosh, everyone, private equity, teachers, you know, they're all over the map. What, what, who are these people that are playing and are they, are they paid in any way? Yeah, no, great question. So, yeah, you know, these guys right now are mostly weekend warriors. Um, they they love the game. They've been playing at the top level on the club scene. 
And for them, this is a chance for them to, you know, get on Fox Sports, uh, to be on live stream, to be they have someone pay to travel around. Uh, we help with their social media, their branding, stuff like that. So we're taking them to the next level. We got an ESPN Sports Center top 10. So it's really the chance for them to expose their athleticism, their brand, their personality to the world when you just don't get that at the club level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How long has the league been in place? How long have you guys been operating under this structure? Yeah, so since 2013, Rob Lloyd was really the one that kicked off the modern version of the AUDL. He's uh, his son, Mark Lloyd from Toronto, uh, great global you know level player. So Rob has run since 2013. I got involved in 2015, and then yeah, I kind of took the helm in 2018 as CEO. Steve, you say that most of the players are weekend warriors. A couple things are um, one: what's the distribution of age? You said you're you're still representing national team at age 56. And then how often do you get someone who rolls out of some other sport? I mean, heck, we're seeing lacrosse players, you know, try out and, and make, you know, G League teams in the NBA or a lacrosse player making a wide receiver roster for training camp in the NFL. I, why are we not seeing more of that kind of transitions from other sports? Or would you expect to see it in the future? Yeah, so that, that's actually a huge push for us because we do think we've got a lot of guys that can cross over uh, as wide, you know, DBs, wide receivers from football, you know, kind of a number one and number three person on basketball teams. So, yeah, we've got a lot of guys who maybe know soccer, but don't have good foot skills that come over. And our players are like a traditional sport. So, you know, 1920, they can kind of kick it in. They're big enough, strong enough. And, you know, once you get over 30, you only have a few survive once you get past 30 because you don't have the heart, the lungs, the hand-eye coordination. Um, and we actually do have some guys crossover, mostly from football, uh, a guy named Jakeem Polk, who was a shutdown corner um, in, uh, in college, uh, looked at the CFL, was playing there, and he's 25 and said, yeah, I'm tired of getting my body beat up. And uh, he tried out for one of our teams, skied everybody, outran everybody, and they, the veterans are like, you got to sign this guy. We'll teach him how to, the crafty throws of the disc. But he's a shutdown guy who can go catch discs in the end zone. We got a spot for him. Wow. Okay. Can you afford, uh, Steve, can you afford to have specialists on the team? Like, for example, I make this up. Why not just have some guy that's seven feet tall that can stand in the end zone and, you know, he will out jump everybody because he's got long arms, seven feet tall. Can the team afford someone that basically can't throw particularly well, can't run particularly fast, but can jump high? Absolutely. And what you're starting to see, I mean, you know, I'm 5'10", hopefully still, and I was an average size guy. <laughs> now we have 6'6 six, six to 6'8 six, guys. Exactly. They're the deep guys. They're going up, they're catching the disc, they're going up for rebounds, and, you know, they're the shutdown. And then we have the Julian Edelmans of the world, the, the short, you know, 5'8", five, 5'9 five, guys, super crafty, super fast. They're getting separation, right? It's like soccer. You get a, you know, two feet of separation. I'm putting the disc out in space. You're running to it. Nobody can touch you. And, and we are definitely seeing that along with the, the crafty handler who just can make all the crazy throws. So, Steve, what, let's talk about the analytics side of things. What motivated you guys to dig into it or to invest so heavily? And one of the things I'm interested in is what have you learned? You know, a lot of times analytics help us quantify things we think we understand already and that can be helpful. But other times it sheds light on something we didn't know. Is there anything you've learned about the sport as a result of being more analytics intense? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, number one, you're talking about the, another podcast about, 
you know, how do you compare athletes across? And, you know, we, we think we're athletes and, but you know, you don't see right. A lot of crossover guys coming in, but that was the number one thing. We looked for the stat sports best, you know, we're running as long at, you know, for a soccer player, we, we run as far as they do, but we run harder. So the, the amount of outwork uh, or, or work or output is greater than a, than an MLS or EPL soccer player. So that was actually surprising to us that we learned and Hey, that's some street credibility. Um, but it also helps with just, you know, we track the disc, we track how our players run. So, you know, looking at um, the amount of spacing between discs, it helped um, confirm small ball versus uh, long ball strategy. So, you know, there, there's there's both, you know, how well does a player play? When do they start to slow down? How well do they work in space to, you know, what kind of strategies are available for people? So, that, you know, we had some ideas, but I think not only did the data, the analytics help us confirm, but also stretch us into new areas of maybe some new strategies we hadn't thought about once we saw the movement and the, the details of movement on the field. Tell us a little bit more about small ball and ultimate Frisbee. And what do you, I, I'm guessing I know what that means, but and, and how is it that, that the virtue or vice of that strategy was revealed to you via analytics? Right. So, you know, if you look at, so when our games, it's four quarters that are 12 minutes each and really turnovers are the key. So our games used to be, you know, 27 to 24, then it became 23 to 21. And now our games are, you know, 18 to 20. That's the score. Okay, hold on. See, in case someone might not know how, what counts, how much is it? What is an event and how much does it count? Right. Yeah. So you throw, you pass a disc from person to person. Once you catch it, you have to establish a pivot foot like basketball and then once you catch it in the end zone, that's one point. And when one. you catch it in one point and then you pull or it's a kickoff, you throw the disc then to the other team, to the other end of the field. Once you change out your offense and defense and then the, their offense would then work it down the field. Um, and so that's you think of a score. You know, so each time you score, it's one point. You're saying in 48 minutes of play, historically, you guys were scoring 50 touchdowns, and now it's dropping down. Over time, this is coming down. Scoring is coming down. Let me just jump in because I haven't seen too much uh, actual highly competitive matches, but I did see one, and one thing that I did notice was that basically it was score, 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 back and forth. Um, It didn't seem to be that that, that missing was extraordinarily rare, and so that it must have been the the deciding factor for the outcome was that one or two misses or or however many there were. And what you're describing now is that there's either more defense or something is really fundamentally changed to go from – that's that sounds like you know 25 to 30 percent less less scoring which must either because you're taking a lot longer or it because there's actually more turnovers or and which is it right which it's actually a combination of both so now that you've got these you know six two six three guys lanky arms can run faster it's you're starting to have better defenses and and we know that turnovers are are a huge problem because it's so hard to you don't have a two point play or three point play right now and we're actually working on a two point concept which you can talk about later um and and then uh realizing that you know it was so tough to win if you turned it over that led to small ball right, right. so uh cuz if you're going to try a 25 30 yard pass you get a little bit of wind that disc starts to move right it's not a football it's not a baseball a lacrosse ball that flies really straight or mostly straight, this thing can curve and turn over. And, um, and so you start having five to 15 yard passes, you know, highly high probability of catching the pass, but it will take longer. So instead of, you know, a point per minute per se, it's now point per 1.25, 1.25, 1.25, 1.25, 1.25, 1.25, 1.25, 1.25, 1.25, 1.25, 1.25, 1.25, 1.25, 1.25, 1.25, 1.25, 1.25, 1.
1.5 minutes because you're making more passes, but mm-hmm. a higher probability of scoring. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting where that small ball starts to make a difference. And again, you might just start to think of shifting your team, more small, quick guys, and maybe like one or two big guys that can go at the end in case you see an obvious break down the field. So, so- what blew me away about the, the, the this is prof- it wasn't, I don't think it was professional, but it was collegiate level um, uh, uh, competition, was how few turnovers there were. I mean, these passes down, long passes, short passes, the accuracy, the the um, num- phenomenal ability, which just blew me away as just as a, as, a, as a casual spectator. You would argue, you would think that given the it is a it is a, a frisbee, uh, it, the wind. I mean, how does how come it how come the game is so so exacting? I mean, is it enormous skill or is it? Um, it's probably certainly, a, or is it just my? We were just misperceiving the the nature of the game. No, it's you're you're spot on. The guys who really can work that disc, you make it curve the way they want. It's a lot of hours throwing and throwing and throwing. You know, and I, and my, my, my sons play uh, lacrosse and, and soccer. You know, it's like soccer. Being able to bend that ball, I mean, that's, it takes a lot of time to learn how that perfect bend over, over a wall for a direct kick. And that just comes with years and years of playing. Mm-hmm. So, Steve, let me ask you, are there indoor and outdoor stadiums? And what do you see if there are? Do you see uh, turnover or score differentials among those stadiums? And do you see even different strategies, you know, for a team that plays indoor versus outdoor? Yeah, great question. We do have our Indianapolis team does play indoor, and it's it's definitely a lot easier. So when that wind is in single digits, the guys with the 175-gram disc, they can cut that disc through the wind. It's not too bad. When you get into double digits, it absolutely changes the game, both on the offense and the defense. You'll see defense go from person to person to zone much, much harder. You pack in that zone, dare to go over the top, dare to make that 25-yard throw, and then again, it forces you to small ball. And so we often talk about upwind versus downwind points. Um, sidewind is really, really brutal. And you basically, you know, change your defense to shove someone to one sideline, dare them to throw back into the wind because <laughs> the disc will drop uh, or float. And that turnover is a killer. So what really interests me is um, <clears throat> where to put your sport um, relative to other sports in the difference between top teams and sort of middle and bottom teams in terms of the probability of winning a, either a single game or a match. And we're, we just finished discussing uh, ma- uh, Major League Baseball, the World Series, and the Astros were a far better team over the entire th- season than the Phillies. And here we are, and it's, uh, it really can go either way. Um, uh, what is that? What, what, how does that work out? I mean, does the top team just crush the bottom teams or is it, or is it uh, much more like 55, 45, or where does it sp- um, uh, play out and, and, uh, how, and how well can you make power rankings for teams and, and how well does that produce predictions that who's going to win? Yeah. So we're, we're like the, the major pro sports where, yeah, the, the top 30% dominate, you know, um, the top 30% dominate, uh, you usually have a bottom 10 to 20% that just struggle. You know, you may, you may have a, a two and 10 season, you know, a four and eight season. And in the middle of the pack, um, you know, it tends to be pretty balanced. So, you know, we're split like that. And, you know, you see it, DraftKings puts lines on our games now. And and we've been pretty amazed at, you know, we don't know who's behind the curtain, um, but but uh, uh, that that the little green man seems to do pretty good job on our spreads. Um, so somebody's somebody's got a model of your teams. We got power rankings somewhere. Yeah, this reminds me. Do we have statistics? Like, what are, do you have statistics? Like like passes, passes completed, you know, possession time. 
those kinds of basic descriptive statistics? We do. Yeah. And we've started, this is a big thing. Now, every team has a statistician. We take stats on an iPad, every game, it feeds up into our, our system. And we have an API that feeds, you know, everybody who wants to play with our, our stats. And so we do, we, um, that's a big thing. Turnover ratio, complete, you know, goals, assists, D's, things like that. But the turnover, the, the passing is what's really interesting. So we look and smell like soccer, you know, good, a good handler should be in that upper nineties, that 95 to hundred. Um, if you're low nineties, you know, then you're probably a specialist downfield specialist, a cutter as we call them. Um, and that is a big deal. And that's what we've really looked at. Again, the guy looks great. He just is tall and lanky. And then if he's got a 92% completion, you're like the guy turns it over, you know, and maybe we've looked past that, you know, cause he's a really cool guy. And, that's where we started really digging into it. And, um, you know, we've learned a lot. Is there a, I, I don't even know. Is there, I forgot what you said, if they get paid or not, but if they do, is there a salary cap or can someone just say, I'm going to pay as much as I want for all the big players or our yeah. best players? Yeah. So they, they get, I call it, uh, you know, IPA beer money. So it's, you know, it's good beer money, but, um, yeah. and it's, we're just starting, we've just started transitioning, you know, from the NFL in the sixties where, you know, you work for the, the team owner at his construction site in the offseason. We do have a couple of teams that are starting to pay players, um, you know, a living wage year round. And and uh, so uh, New York Empire has, you know, said, hey, listen, you know, we want to we want to put together good teams. So they found ways to compensate their guys and they've won, you know, two out of the last three championships. It's starting to show and they know where the talent is. They bring them in. They find ways to, you know, to do well in. And we have guys who are doing well, uh, a guy named Marquise Brownlee, MKBHD. He has 15 million followers on his YouTube channel. He reviews software, you know, Tesla cars. He used to do iPhone reviews. So he's like a major, you know, he's probably, his following is probably bigger than our entire league. Um, so we have some crossover guys like that as well. Steve, the, it sounds like your investment in analytics is somewhat centralized. Are there team? Are there any competitive advantages to be to being had to be had? Are some teams more invested, or some teams taking it more seriously than others? Is that even a possibility? It is. So we um, we make all of the analytics available to our teams. We also make the video. We have a video library that all the teams can tap into do the raw video. So our Boston team actually uh, has some AI going on on video analytics. Uh, you you see this, some of the camera systems, uh, Spideo, Pixelot you know, huddle, they're all taking your videos and doing stuff for the major posts. So we have not as a league uh, engaged those companies yet. Um, but some of the team, again, Boston guys have some, you know, there's a couple of decent schools. There's another good technical school up in Boston, almost as good as Georgia Tech. And they're they're engaging some of the students to work on AI for, for those kinds of things. And where do you find the advantages on the fields? Where do you get your ISO matchups for next week competition? Right, right, right. Okay. Listen, uh, last, last question. Uh, we're always interested in, we talk a lot about tournament design um, in, on this show as, as we wander across sports. You come, you, you come across different tournament designs and they have consequences. And of course, there are rules within each game that have consequences. We've talked to some folks, you know, folks who do things for like the XFL. They get real creative about improving the sport, making it more entertaining or making it more competitive. You guys have put some thought into these kinds of things. What kinds of rules are you considering changing to alter the sport and why? 
Uh, that's a great one. So we have our all-star game coming up on November the 12th, and we're going to do some real experimentation in our all-star game. So the biggest one, I gave you all a teaser, the two-point play. So you think about how basketball has changed with the three-point play coming in. Now, that's a 1.5 change, right? We're talking about a two-for-one. And mm-hmm. so if you look at, we call it something called a brick mark, which is, let's call it the 35-yard line from a football perspective. That's where you center the disc if it goes out of bounds on the kickoff. From there, we're saying if you will throw a pass from, you know, behind the brick mark, the 35-yard line, and you catch in the end zone, that's worth two points. Your, which, your own your own 35, basically, so right. a 65-yard touchdown. No, Correct. no, no. Yeah, 65-yard pass, right? So if you're wow. behind, yeah, your own 35. And these guys can make, you know, we said half, halfway is too easy. We have a lot of passes. And again, with the statistics, we're able to look at the length of all the scoring passes. Right. And, and what's, what's a two for one, you know, uh, you know, return. And so we actually think it's probably like the three point line. We think a lot of people in the Ulster game will go for those two point plays because you can, you know, I mean, and again, entertainment, you want a close game, right? I was ready to turn off the Astros Philly game at 5-0. I'm an Astros fan. And then here come the Phillies. And then it was exciting to watch. So we're trying to, to make that. And then the backcourt, uh, a little basketball. So once you advance the disc beyond halfway, you can't work it back the field. So a delay tactic, right? If you're up by two with two minutes to go in the fourth quarter, you just keep passing this disc around. You right? You put your your fastest players out there. You And so we said, one, let's let's force you once you go past halfway, you got to keep the disc in that forward half. And yeah. so easier for a turnover, easier for a team then to get it and then, you know, have have some equalizers. So those are two. I'm working on a couple of those are the two biggest that we'll implement okay. for all star game. Would you ever go to a possession clock? Because, because the you know, basketball had the four corners offense for a long time. That's what led to the possession yeah. clock. But you've got this half court thing you're going to try. Why would you choose the half court restriction as opposed to a possession clock? Right. So right now, that's the easiest thing we think to implement. But yeah, if you look at New York Empire, they were up by three goals in the championship game this past year. And they went into the, the Princeton four corners and they passed around and, and dared the team to chase them around the field. And it actually wasn't very exciting. We were like, you know, snooze. Nobody wants to see this, right? As a right. fan, you want to see action. So this is actually in reaction. And I give them credit. That was the right strategy at the right time. We're going to try half court. If it doesn't work, then we'll, we'll look at a, at a shot clock. Just okay. one quick question. Have you guys considered the ELAM scoring system, which is used in uh, basketball, where they shut off the clock in the fourth quarter? You add eight points to the winning to the leading team score, and that's the score you have to get to. So there is no, in some sense, it removes time, it removes killing the clock. It's just there. It ends up being, let's say one team's ahead fifteen to eleven. You set up the score and saying the first one then to twenty one wins the game. Yeah, so Eric, hold on. So mo- motivate that system for us. What is the appeal of that system as opposed to the traditional just play out the clock? Well, it's what Steve just mentioned. So there's no concept of a clock there in the sense that I'm not just going to kill the clock because I'm up a certain number of goals with a certain amount of time left. We said a obviously the team leading still has an advantage because they're much closer to the end goal. And this is something we've had the person that invented the Elam scoring system on. And this is Mr. Elam. Yeah. And it's been used in a number of events. Um, Either way, we'll send you the article. But it, I, I was just thinking that as you were talking about trying to you know, prevent killing the clock or, you know, the Princeton four quarters, you know, we're Pete Carrill fans here um, or in pre, pre Pete Carrill. Um, maybe the Elam scoring system is something you guys would consider. 
Yeah, we, we, we should definitely look at it. I mean, I think part of what we're also trying to do is make this a sport that's easy to understand. And you know, if we get too far out of the box, you know, do we, do we, does it spook the, the current fan? So that's, yeah. it's a little bit of, you know, easy to understand fan engagement right. versus, right. you know, optimizing uh, the, the four of us would, would kind of get off on that. <laughs> right. Sometimes, you know, the basic fan who wants to have a couple of beers and a hot dog may not, may not appreciate the, the, so look at it though. It's a really interesting idea because, you know, we all grew up playing pickup basketball and, and you don't play pickup basketball with a clock. You play it to a certain number. You play ping pong to a certain number. And so there is an intuitive aspect of it that, that translates. I want to go back and ask, talk about optimization. I want to go back and ask the whole crew here. How would you choose the, the length pass required for the two point shot? So you guys did this and there are some, like you said, there's some, communicability, um, transparency considerations. So one of the nice things that y'all did, you chose the brick line, which is already a known, a known location. It's what matches really well to what people are accustomed to using. But setting aside that kind of consideration, what success probability would you choose? I'm asking Eric and Adi to kind of push Steve and to hear Steve, because Steve did all this. He already thought about this. If you were asked as a consultant to the ultimate league here, what what success probability should we use in, in picking the length of a two-point touchdown pass? What would you use and why? Well, I mean, basically, the, what's the expected points from the, is it the 35-yard line? Um, and you want to make sure that the expected point sort of matches that. Um, well, is that it? Is it just, do, do you well, want to sort of, do you want to quote I sort of match? No, so. I mean, I think so. So, that, so your probability of success, so for since you're doubling it, your probability of success has got to have to be, I mean, so let me, I mean, just, I'm just going to throw this out. I don't know the exact number, but if you get, if you get the Frisbee or the disc at 35 yard line, your expected points is probably 0.95 or so. It sounds like, um, I, I, you can confirm that Steve, am I in the right ballpark? You're, you're saying that of possession. You have possession at the normal start of the possession line. You you get a point. You get a touchdown ninety five percent of the time. Right. Is that about right? Yes. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. You're right. So if you're going to get double that with two, you're going to have to let two times the probability equal one. You know, point nine five. So I'm going to be looking at you're going to be looking at something like forty forty seven percent. Right. Uh, okay, except, so, let me just make one modification yeah, to what Adi said. Right. I, I, want, would, hold on, Eric, I, would, I want to hear the modifications. I want, to, I want to take Adi. Adi is saying, isn't it obvious? Don't you just kind of equate these things? I want to say, well, that's an obvious starting place. And now let's well, consider why you might permute from that. And so Eric's you might go all, down. You might go down because you don't want it to be abused. If it's up, it's just you're going to do that every time, right? The expected value is going to blow out the, the normal play. No, I see. I want, abuse, I want abuse no. and I want high variance. So <laughs> I want to make it so that two times P is, let's make it modestly more, you know, well, think in the NBA. Versus much variance. It's normally it's- Adi, you've got to consider variance and risk tolerance here. And um, you're, you're assuming risk neutrality. And that's, yeah, I don't want that. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, Eric, the thing is, you Eric, can't be higher than 47.5% because then your expectation is going to be higher. And I don't is, care if there's risk. Adi, it's, high, it's higher in the NBA for three point shooting. And, 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 we, and it took a long time for them to adapt that. And of course, they've gotten better over time. So it's moved up well, over time. Let's ask Steve if we're at all close to the calculation you guys did. And did you think about the topic of risk neutrality in some sense, equalizing yeah. the two? Or maybe choose a place where the probability is fifty-one percent, and therefore it's worth one point oh two in expectation, or something like that. Yeah. So, Eric, I think you're going on the path I thought of, which is 
most of my guys said, oh, I really should be closer to the end zone, like an end zone, end zone shot from a pure probability risk neutrality perspective. And I said, look at the NBA, look at the fans. And so this is my fan, my, my fan, you know, uh, part of the, the, the algorithm. The fans love to see the deep shot, right? Nobody cares about the 10-yard pass. People want to see guys lay out. They want to see him bang. They want to see, they want the glory, baby. And that's why I said, move that freaking line up. And they had to take me away. I said, let's go halfway. They're like, no, it'll be nothing but two-point shots. I'm like, yes, that's awesome. <laughs> so we negotiated back to the brick mark. That's awesome. Right, I mean, you're basically saying you want the shot to, to dominate that. Yes. I mean, right. Yes. But, I, I mean, want but people, people taking shots. Absolutely. I want to I mean, see wild swings in the game. That's because that's inter- we're in the entertainment business, right? Right. That's entertainment. Yeah. Good. Well, so this is the difference between getting the model right and understanding probabilities and then making a policy decision. And um, we have to move beyond just having the analysis and numbers to what's the right policy. And that means, you know, asking what you care about. Steve, this has been a lot of fun. Appreciate your making time for us. We wish you the best with the work you're doing there at the American Ultimate Desk League. It sounds like something that we're going to see more of over time. Awesome. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Eric. You bet. Take care. You bet. Steve Hall. He is currently the CEO and commissioner of the American Ultimate Disc League. He is an owner of one of the clubs there. They are getting increasingly um, attention. You can bet on them at some sports books, and they're playing their players more every year. It's going to be fun to watch what happens there. All right, guys, that has been four quarters of Wharton Moneyball, two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week for the whole crew. Eric Bradlow has been here with me for the whole run. Adi for most of it, for Shane Jensen, who's out and about this week, for Matty Datz, the boss man, for Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Appreciate y'all listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. <laughs>